All right, Keaton, come on up, man. Come on. I, uh, I wanted you guys to uh, shake hands and smile a little bit. Uh, one, to convince visitors that we're a friendly group, uh, or maybe fool them into thinking we're that. Uh, but more importantly, we're about to wade into some swampy waters this morning, and I just want you to know you're not in it alone, okay, that the person you just shook hands with is as messy as you are, all right? You know that? I mean, they may smell better than you, but they're just as messy, all right? So uh, we have a treat today because we've asked Keaton to read for us. He's a professional reader that we brought in from New York. And uh, you are, bro. All right. We're in Acts chapter six, and we are going to read the entire Bible because we want to hear Keaton speak. No, we are going to read the first seven verses of Acts chapter six. Somebody give me a page number from your journal. 34. If you have the prayer journals or the, the Acts journals, then uh, page 34. Keaton. Yes. Our expectations are so high now. <laughs> In those days. Yes. <laughs> yes. I feel like we need some slow jazz just playing in the background. This is a nightmare. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please start again. Okay. Behold the word of God. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of, of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the, of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you, Lord, for Keaton and uh, just your word. And we pray, Lord, now that you would do what we cannot do. Father, we would just take this as pure information, but it's your Holy Spirit that actually breathes on your word and makes it alive and pierces us and meets us where we are, but never leaves us there. So Lord, we pray, would you begin the process of changing us even now, even Lord, uh, if it means that we must let go of the death grip of the things that we're holding on to that you're asking us to release. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you're a first-timer here, uh, we're in Acts, and we're studying this historic book about the beginning of the church. So this book really begins with, you know, Christ has lived a full life. He went to the cross and died. Then he rose again from the dead. And the book really begins with his ascension into heaven and the beginning of the church. And the beginning was unbelievable. If you've been with us, if you go back to chapter 4, uh, thousands came to know the Lord at Pentecost. Um, just thousands. And then if you go to chapter five, you see when Peter was preaching after they had healed the lame man, 
two more thousand men were added to their number. In fact, because scripture talks about men that are being converted, many historians and theologians believe it wasn't just 5,000 that had come to the Lord, but it was probably closer to 20,000. So we have this huge community of people that have gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival. They were only going to plan to be there for a few days. They have this huge conversion experience. 20,000 people that 30 days ago were not a church are now a church. You can imagine this. And it's just pure chaos. People are looking for food to eat. Where are we going to stay? People are selling property and giving it to the apostles. A lot is going on and it's exciting. It's like being at Young Life Camp, you know, for the very first time. It's just thrilling. And right here in the midst of this thrilling time, it says in those days, meaning the first 30 days of the church, when the numbers of disciples were increasing, they were going through the roof. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let me give you some context of what this is about. So when everybody was being converted, this was an entirely exclusive Jewish conversion. And this Jewish conversion was made up of two different groups. There was the Hebraic Jews. Now, We have to go back in history a little bit and go back to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians when they took the Jewish uh, country captive and held them in captivity for years. And then when they released them, there was a group of purists that returned to Jerusalem to reestablish temple sacrifices and the worship of the temple and the community that was purely Jewish. And they were completely committed to the letter of the law and they spoke Hebrew. They were the Hebraic Jews. These were the people that picked up the old ways in every little detail and said, we're going to make them a reality. They lived in Jerusalem. Then there was the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were people that didn't really quite make it back to Jerusalem after the exile. And they kind of grew up in the Greek world. They didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. They were kind of that group of people that went to church on Sunday uh, after a whole weekend at Bonnaroo. You know, like, yeah, you know, they love good wine. They love culture. They love being out at the concerts and the shows. They weren't so like this isolated bubble of Hebraic Jews. They were like, man, my world's big. I hang out with all kinds of people. Yeah, a pagan down the street's a buddy of mine. We golf together. Like they were kind of more of a worldly group of people, but they still love God. And they're like, you know, we're going to go back to Jerusalem for the festivals, you know, we're going to have a good time. And when they got there and they all started becoming Christians, like boom, 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 uh, they started to notice something that there was a lot, there was a conflict between these two groups that goes back all the way back to Babylon. They kind of looked down on each other. They kind of judged each other. They kind of had different cultures. They had different ways of doing things. They had different languages. And now that they had become Christians, the Hellenistic Jews were starting to see something. They were starting to see that our widows, when Barnabas sold his property and he gave it to the church, and the church is trying to feed everybody, wait, our widows are getting overlooked. And it's not that they're getting overlooked because somebody's just not feeding them. There's a deeper, more sinister thing that's going on here. Okay. <laughs> so, you ready? The first thing I want you to hear is whenever you get people together, there are problems. 
I know it's a brain, you know, blow your brain. And here's going to blow your brain even more. When you get Christians together, there are problems. Like this, this is the church 30 days into it. And now they're dealing with racism. They're dealing with cultural biases. They're dealing with hatred. They're dealing with scheming and planning. That's the 30 day year old church. (laughs) That people were exhibiting all kinds of stuff that was deeply rooted in their lives and was reflecting and pouring out into the church. If you're going to be in church, you are going to face problems. In fact, let me take it a little deeper. If you become a part of Midtown, you are the problem. I'm serious. If you don't create problems here, it's because you come late to church, get your coffee, leave early because you don't want to know anybody. In fact, that's the best way to do church. I'm serious. That is so noncommittal. Get what you need. Get out fast before any of these troublemakers get to know you. Because once they get to know you and really get to know you, then they might try to do something, which is crazy. How much time we got today? Because they may actually try to love you. And that's where it gets messy. Because there are certain things about you that make you almost impossible to love. And if you're saying, oh, boy, he's talking right to my spouse. (laughs) I am talking to you. See, let's just get to the heart of it because I want to talk about how they dealt with this conflict because I want to talk about how we're going to deal with conflict here at Midtown and how we do deal with conflict here at Midtown. And the first thing we're going to do is let's see what didn't work. You know, the first thing that didn't work is becoming a Christian does not solve your problems. I mean, Jesus does great things in our lives. He forgives me of my sin. He makes me alive spiritually for the first time in my life. He puts his Holy Spirit within me. He gives me riches, hope, power. I mean, the benefits of being adopted into the family of God, we talk about them all the time here. Your pockets are full. And God says, I'll never leave you and I'll never abandon you. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll go before you. I'll come behind you. All of that is true, right? Y'all with me this morning? My sinuses are killing me, so I need your help, all right? But if you hated conflict before you became a Christian, pretty good chance that after you became a Christian, you still hate conflict. True? Okay. If you can never say no to anybody before you became a Christian because you need their affirmation and love and you don't want to ever threaten them not loving you by saying no and refusing anything that they want from you, regardless of what it is they're asking you, pretty good chance after you get forgiven of all your sins and you're headed for glory, you still can't say no. As a matter of fact, if you hate, before you begin, if you hated talking about your emotions because it seemed like a foreign language and a royal waste of time, Pretty good chance after you become a Christian, you still hate talking about your emotions because they seem like a foreign language and a total waste of time. I'll tell you, I'll even go a step further. If before you became a Christian, you hated being in a room with a small group of people, pretty good chance after you became a Christian, going to a small group is the last thing you want to do. I even know people, I know this is going to be a stretch now. I know people before they became a Christian, they basically believe that everybody's idiots and that's why they're so angry. I know. But after they became Christian, guess what? They still believe everybody's a bunch of idiots and that's why they're always so angry. 
I'm telling you that Jesus does a lot when we get converted and brought into his family, but there's also a lot that he leaves, he leaves unfixed. Problems are normal. So y'all know my sick sense of humor. Uh, maybe you don't, but I was preparing this week and I just started laughing when I was remembering a skit from SNL. And I had to go to it and I watched it like four times and I'm in my office laughing out loud to this skit again and again. And I thought, how could I not share it with you? <laughs> so join me in, uh, I think you'll see where this applies. Culture, history, spaghetti. These are the things of a boot country called Italia. Hello, I'm Joe Romano of Romano Tours. For two generations, my family has provided high-quality tours of Italy to people from all over the world, but mostly Long Island and Jersey. We saw all of Italy in a bus, okay? We ate every day incredible. Yeah, I got to look at the Pope, and he even told me happy birthday. Thanks, Thanks Romano, Romano Tours. tours. Explore the old country with our award-winning 10-day vacation packages. See Venice, the city of wetness. Point and laugh at the Tower of Pisa. And play with some dough in Napoli. People love us, but every so often a customer leaves a review that they weren't, they were disappointed or didn't have as much fun as they thought. So here at Romano Tours, we always remind our customers, if you're sad now, you might still feel sad there, okay? You understand that makes sense? Our tours will take you to the most beautiful places on Earth. Hike the cliffs of the Amalfi Coast. Fish with the nets in Sorrento. Do this, I don't know. But remember, you're still gonna be you on vacation. If you are sad where you are, and then you get on a plane to Italy, to you in Italy will be the same sad you from before, just in a new place. Does that make sense? There's a lot of vacation can do. Help you unwind, see some different looking squirrels. But it cannot fix deeper issues, like how you behave in group settings or your general baseline mood. That's a job for incremental lifestyle changes sustained over time. This may sound rude, but I'm trying to temper expectations. I hate seeing people beat themselves up on my toys. It really gets to me. Look, a day is a long time to feel happy for all of it. Most of us get 45 minutes if we're lucky. And that's our motto at Romano Tours. Romano Tours. We make memories, not memories. I know. Some of you are like, we're leaving this place. Some of you are like, we're not going anywhere. This is... You get the point. <clears throat> problems are normal. You having problems are normal. Jesus doesn't fix all your problems. Jesus changes the resources that you have to face those problems. But he doesn't necessarily take them away. And here's something else that may be a shocker to you. He may not solve all your problems before you die. You may end up struggling with things for a long time. And I just want you to hear, that is normal. 
We're seeing it at the very beginning of the church. That is normal. So when you become a part of Midtown and you go, wow, there are problems here. Yes, because there's people here and you joining us is going to add to our problems. In Proverbs chapter 14, I got to read this to you. Like, listen to this. This is verse four. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Do you know what that means? But from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. You can't have it both ways. You can't have an abundant harvest and no poo in the barn. If you want an abundant harvest, there's going to be poo in the barn because you got ox. And that's true about us too because you bring your junk in here just like the rest of us do. We all need grace. That's, that's the whole mantra of Christianity is the profound love and grace of God on people that don't deserve it. And when Jesus comes in our lives, he doesn't take our problems away. Most of them. Okay, enough of that. The second thing that they didn't do. Complaining didn't fix the problem. Shocker. The Hellenistic Jews started to complain against the Hebraic Jews. But that, that's not where the story ended. That's not where the gospel say, well, as soon as they complained, the problems are all gone. It's not. In fact, let's talk a little, a little bit about complaining. Because if you're around here very long, you're going to be a complainer. Because you are. Because I'm a complainer. We all complain. It's a part of being human too. But we need to understand complaining so that we don't let it take over. Listen to what is, this is Jody Rippling. She wrote an article on why we complain. I thought this is brilliant. She goes, complaining is essentially a form of delusion that helps us feel good about ourselves in the short term. It works in two ways. First, by putting down everything and almost everyone around us. We may gain a sense of superiority. And second, since we tend to believe more strongly in our fantasies than reality, when reality strikes in the form of a delayed train or a less than perfect partner, we complain in an attempt to protect our fantasies. And in protecting our fantasies, our unwillingness to take responsibility for our choices. Complaining allows me to step away from the problem and never own the pain of the problem. In fact, Brene Brown talks about this in her book. What is it? She's written so many. But she talks about blaming, and she says, uh, blaming is just displaced pain. She says, here's what we know from the research. Blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. It has an inverse relationship with accountability. Blaming is a way that we discharge our anger. In other words, blaming is the way that we, we feel pain. Complaining is the way that we feel pain. But instead of honestly dealing with it, we're actually not dealing with it. Because I'm going to make it your responsibility. And if it's your responsibility to deal with it, I don't ever have to deal with it. In fact, you'll hear me say oftentimes, complaining is the pornography of groaning. It almost looks like intimacy, but it's really not. Because in Romans chapter 8, Scripture says we were made to groan. Like all of creation is groaning because life is hard. Right? Life is hard. And what we know from Scripture is hard isn't bad. It's just hard but heart hurts. And if I have the courage to go through my heart, that's groaning. I'm feeling the pain. I'm owning the pain. I'm walking in the pain. I'm being responsible with the pain. Complaining goes, nope, not doing that. And I'm going to go around because it's your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault. 
So complaining doesn't build community. It actually takes me away from the very community that my heart is longing for. Ray Pritchard said, uh, he made it a little bit more spiritual because he's a theologian. He says, do we understand that complaining is an attack on on God's sovereignty? He says, every time you complain about your circumstances, you're really saying, if I were God, I would do things differently. The complainer has forgotten the first rules are the first rule of the spiritual life. He is God and I am not. So we know it didn't get fixed because Jesus saved them. We know it didn't get fixed because they complained. And let me just give a nod to this. It also didn't get fixed by the apostles. And this is a shocker. They went to the apostles and the apostles didn't go, oh, we'll fix it, we'll fix it. We promise we'll fix it. We'll take care of it. They didn't do that at all. In fact, they showed remarkable maturity by going, you know what? That ain't our job. They knew what their gifts were. They knew what the limitations of their gifts were. They embraced the limitations as God-given limitations to their life and their gift. And what do they do? They step back and realize this is somebody else's job and role. And the reason I only say that is because There are some people in our community, you may be one of them, that you've never seen or met a problem you didn't love. That there's not, that you've never met a problem that you weren't willing to jump into and roll up your sleeves, regardless of whether or not it's your responsibility or not, you're going to fix it. I'm going to help fix it. And what we're seeing here is even the apostles said, nope, nope. We're going to use our authority to invite someone else into this. Okay, so. That's what they did that didn't fix it. But now it's got to get a little personal, all right? So this is where you get to participate. Where are you in conflict? I don't shout it out, all right? (laughs) But like where? In this community or in your life or in your family? Um, With friends, with your neighbors? Like where are you in conflict? And if you can't remember the last time you're in conflict, um, you need to join a small group. So we can stir a little conflict up in your life to meet some people. But I want you to make it personal now because I want you to hold the frame up of where you are in conflict with people in your life. And I want you to hear the rest of this sermon through that frame. So I'm going to talk for about 10 more minutes and then we're going to come to this table and we're going to, we're going to bring that frame to the Lord and we're going to ask the Lord by the power of his grace and by the gospel of Jesus Christ to begin to mature us, um, to walk into our problems and to love the people in our lives and let them love us. So you ready? You got it? Participation? All right. (laughs) How do we deal with these problems? It really matters. In fact, if you look at the end of this passage, it says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. That's not new news, but this next line is, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A large number of priests. Like, get this. This is like priest. And you can see what's going on here. It's because the priests, there were thousands of them in Jerusalem. We can talk about that another time. But they all knew this conflict between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. They knew that when festivals started, they're all going, man, the war's going to happen, you know? And when they saw this Christian movement explode with both groups, they probably stepped back and go, you wait, you wait. Oh, it's coming. You wait, you wait. 
They knew what was coming. And then when it exploded, they were like, told you, told you. See, see, there it is. I knew those guys wouldn't get along. The conflict wasn't what brought them to faith. Get this. The way they resolved the conflict is what brought them to faith. It's not the lack of problems in the church that displays the glory of God. It's how we deal with those problems that display the glory of God. Does that make sense? Because I just used my fingers to do that, all right? So are you all with me? The first thing they did, this is going to be so simple. The first thing they did was they honestly put the problem in front of everybody. They didn't hide it. They didn't cover it up. They didn't pretend it didn't exist. They literally, get this, they literally saw the problem and then brought the problem in front of everybody. They brought the problem into the light of day. What were they thinking? I got to tell you, that's a shocker for me. Like I grew up in a home where my parents never fault. And if I stopped right there, you would say, man, that's such a beautiful home. No, no, my home was so dysfunctional. The reason that we never fought is because we never dealt with anything. We never talked about anything. We always took our problems and we had this closet that we would just throw them into the closet. We would shut the door. We had like 12 locks on them and go, we're never going to talk about them. We're never going to think about them. We're never going to try to deal with them. We're going to pretend like they don't exist. We're going to pretend that none of those problems even exist in this world. Even if they're big problems like drug abuse or alcoholism or infidelity, we're not going to talk about any of that stuff. Keep it locked away because if we keep it locked away, we're all safe. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Can I have another slice of roast beef? Yes, please. It's not what the apostles did. They didn't seem to have a closet like that. Have you ever heard the story of Pandora's box? This is from Greek mythology and um, Pandora was getting married and Zeus brought her Pandora's box. Um, or if you're a literal translation person, it's Pandora's jar. But that doesn't sound as good as box, does it? I kind of like Pandora's bar, you know, box. Anyway, and so Zeus said to Pandora, don't ever open this box. The last thing you want to do is open this box, which that's horrible. Like, I'm going to give you a gift, never unwrap it. I, so what was Zeus? Man, crazy guy. And so curiosity got the best of her and she eventually opened it up and what flew out of Pandora's box was all the most horrible things that the world has ever experienced what came flooding into the world was greed and envy and hatred and pain and disease and hunger and poverty wars and death came flooding out of the box but if you continue to read the story after all of those things came flooding out of the box sitting at the bottom of the box was hope. That the only way to get to hope was to open up Pandora's box and unleash hell. And you know what's amazing about that? Because we know as believers, because one of the gifts that God has given us, he has given us the gift of rejoicing in our suffering. Because rejoicing, rejoicing in our suffering, which is an act of faith, It's not an act of emotions, it's an act of faith. When I rejoice in my suffering, it produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And you know what character produces? Hope. 
because hope has a purpose. What does hope do? Hope helps me see that God's pouring his love out into my heart. Hope is the capacity to walk into darkness with the light of hope, that he loves me and that he wants his love to go forth. Hope is the capacity to walk into war and hatred and envy and greed. Hope is the ability to open up that closet and let it all come out and go, nothing here is greater than him. Nothing. There is nothing so huge here. I don't care what's in your closet. I don't know where the conflict is or what your conflict's about. There is nothing in that closet, no matter how dark it is, that is greater than the grace of God. Nothing. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Is hard bad? No. It's just hard. We often say here that pain doesn't change the truth. Pain just convinces me it's not true anymore. So we need hope. And the second thing they did, can you give me two more minutes, all right? So that means I got seven minutes, all right? Just seven minutes, because this next one's good. Because the second thing they did is they listened. They listened to each other. And... This may seem like a small thing. I hope when I get through talking, you're going to know, no, that's a huge thing. That the ability to listen to God is profound. Because it gives me the grace to be able to listen to me, which is profound. Because my life is speaking. Your life is speaking. But when I make room to listen to God and to myself, I now have capacity to listen to you. But if I'm not willing to listen to God, I'm not going to listen to you. And if I'm not listening to me, there's no way I'm going to listen to you. But if I do those things and walk into a place to where I start to listen to you, I, like to, I slow down and I begin to honor you by listening to you. It, it is a healing agent. It is powerful. It honors God and it honors you. So let's see how good of a listener you are. Ready to take a test? Oh, SNL skit and a test all in one Sunday. I can't believe it. So I'm going to give you a 10-point test. You grade yourself on a yes or no. If it's true about you, say yes. Keep finger count. 10 questions. Uh, We're going to see how you score out of 10. If you say, no, that's not me, don't give yourself a finger. All right? Take that any way you want. All right? Okay. For example, the first one is my close friends would describe me as, as a responsible or a responsive listener. My friends would describe me as a responsive listener. You go, no, that's probably not true about me. Don't give yourself a finger. But if you say, yeah, that's true about me, give yourself a one. All right? Are you with me? You bored yet? (laughs) Okay. Question two. When people are upset with me, I'm able to listen to them without being defensive. Keep going. Three. I listen not only to the words people say, but also to the feelings behind their words and their body language. Yes, amen. Okay, number four. I have little interest in judging other people or quickly giving my opinions to them. (laughs) Do not be scoring for your spouse, please. Five. I am able to validate another person's feelings with empathy. Six, I'm aware of my defense mechanisms in stressful 
conversations. Let me read that again. You are aware of your defensive mechanisms in stressful conversations. For example, appeasing, ignoring, blaming, distracting. How do you defend? (laughs) Number seven. I'm profoundly aware of how the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. Yes. Number eight, I ask for clarity when listening rather than filling in the blanks or making assumptions. Number nine, I don't interrupt to get my point across when another person is speaking. And number 10, I give people my undivided attention when they are talking to me. How do you, how do you grade yourself? I would say that if you are a six to seven, or if you're an eight to 10, uh, you need to come on staff. <laughs> we need your help. If you're six to seven, you're, you're pretty good. If you're four to five, eh. If you're three or less, uh, you're in trouble. You need to start learning how to listen. Because that's a part of your life that maybe Christ is drawing you into, and that's probably why you have so many problems in your life. It's because you don't stop long enough to listen to God, to listen to others, and to listen to yourself. But look what happened when this community stopped to listen. They listened to the pain because there was a majority, which were the Hebraic Jews, they're the majority, and they were, they were abusing the marginalized minority. The minority was the Hellenistic Jews. And what did the majority do? They had every right to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Many historians believe that the temple stopped taking care of the the widows because they had become Christians. And that's why the Christian community had to take up this responsibility. But this majority easily could have said to the minority, you don't know what you're talking about. Ah, But they didn't. They actually listened with compassion. And how do we know that they listened with compassion? Look at the names. Go back to the passage. Get Keaton to come back up here and read them again. You see something familiar about them? They're all Greek names. They're all Hellenistic names. The majority, which had the majority vote, the Hebraic Jews said, we see the problem. You've put it in front of us clear as day. We're not avoiding it. We're not going to bury it. And we're listening to the pain of our brothers and sisters. And we're going to walk into that pain so tenderly so tenderly that we, we're not going to touch it. We're going to empower you with all the power you need to hold us accountable to love on your widows. Astounding. Who does that? People that were marginalized and the high king of heaven came after them. That's who does that. All they did All they did was say, let's be honest about the problem and let's listen. Because here's what's crazy. If I listen to you with those 10 points of listening, how can I not love you? How can I not care about you? In fact, think about this. When we begin to listen like that, even in marriage, when we have conflict, we actually are are so listening with compassion that I can actually take up my wife's cause against me. 
Think about that. Like, you're absolutely right. That guy's a jerk. I can't believe it's two against one. Let's go get him. Like, because I'm so for her and understanding her and being compassionate toward her. I am trying to help her find purchase and ground in this place of our identity and our relationship to where I can actually love her and let her love me. And that's what happened in this story of these two groups of Jews. And that's what's true about us here at Midtown. Problems are normal because you're here. But what we have to face those problems is anything but normal. We've been given supernatural power by the one who lived a perfect life, went to the cross and rose again, which gives us courage now to be honest about our problems and learn how to compassionately listen and love one another. So I told you, where you're in conflict, frame in this table. Because let me tell you what this table is about. That life is hard. And Jesus said he knew it's hard. And he gave us this sacrament, this beautiful sacrament, so that in moments, once a month, we come together and we celebrate this place and a sacrament as a means of grace where we experience the hug of our Father and the kiss of our Savior. That we come to this table and he says, I want you to do two things at this table. One is remember, you are forgiven, you are free, and he's given you everything you need for life and godliness, so don't be afraid. And two, proclaim. And what does that mean? You start shouting the truth of this table over the rest of your life. So let me read for you. This is Paul. He said, for I receive from the Lord, but I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the way we do this here at Midtown is the worship team's gonna come in and lead us in worship and so we can begin to practice presence with God, listening to him, let him speak to your heart. Um, and in this time of worship, when you're ready, um, get up. Come on up. Squeeze in. Don't be afraid. Uh, the people around you need you, and the people around you need you. No, you need them. They need you. So come on up. When you're ready at this kneeling place of worship uh, to receive communion, put your hands out, and they will serve you. If you would like them to pray for you, just cross your chest, and they'll enter into your story with you through prayer. Now, the cups, we have wine on the outside and we have grape juice on the center, so you can choose which of the two you'd prefer. When you get through taking communion, if you'll exit out the door here, go out in the hallway and make your way back to your seat. In the hallway, there's a prayer wall. That This is one of the ways we enter into each other's lives, that you would post a prayer on the wall anonymously uh, and take a prayer, knowing that somebody's going to take your prayer request and be lifting you up this week and put that prayer somewhere in a prominent place in your life. I always encourage folks um, to stop, as it said in Corinthians, and examine yourselves now. If what I've talked about today has led you to a place of, I'm unwilling to go where Jesus is leading, Scripture says stay where you are. Deal with that before you come up. Because when you come to this communion table, you're saying to Jesus, here's all of me. Come after me. It's better to do that in partnership with him and allow him to have access to your heart. Um, if you don't know what that means, I'm happy to talk to you. I'll be up here um, if you want to pull me aside. 
So let me pray and let us come to the table. Lord, we are we're a problem group. And I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that um, you have not despised us, you have not marginalized us, but you, in your love for us, you have come after us. That Jesus, that you were not content for us to not be at peace with you, but you came and gave your life for us. The great reconciler, the great healer of our soul, and granted us forgiveness and renewal and adoption so that we can walk into community and not be afraid of problems, not hide the problems, but can actually face conflict and listen and love those around us. And I pray, Lord, as we come to this table, that this would be a healing table, a healing of that place where we have lost courage, a healing of that place where we have doubts and we have lost faith, a healing place, Father, where you meet us and give us everything we need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.